You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of solids. If you ask the majority of evangelical leaders or pundits on Christian media platforms today, They'll tell you that the main problem with the church is that it's a white patriarchal man's country club. The only problem with this type of rhetoric and thinking? Well, the data is clear. The situation within the walls of the church is exactly the opposite. The American church is at least 60% female in composition. Men aren't coming to church and they haven't been for at least a century. How did we get to this point in the American church? Why are the church pews so full of women and repulsive to men? Why aren't men coming to church? Why is the presence of men the essential, the essential marker of the health of the church, and yet our churches don't have men and we ignore this problem? How can we reverse these trends? Well, in this episode, I'm going to delve into these very important questions with David Murrow. David is the author of the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn. And today we are joined by a very special guest. We have Mr. David Murrow. He is the author of the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. David, thanks for joining us in this episode today. Glad to be with you. So, David, first question, as, as I read the book, I was thinking, wh- what were you doing before you wrote this book, and what got you interested in the subject matter of why men are not going to church? Well, I'm a television producer and writer by trade, and one time I was sitting in church, and I realized that if my church was a television show, it would be on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Everything <laughs> about my church was targeted at a middle-aged and older woman. The ministry programs we offered all involved uh, hospitality and children and cooking and uh, sewing and uh, scrapbooking and um, it just kind of real. And then the pastor was wearing a robe that kind of looked like a dress and there were lace doilies on the communion table and ribbons and flowers. And the pastor was talking about relationships and nurturing and you know, I just realized that this whole enterprise was designed to enthrall a middle-aged woman, to keep her volunteering, to keep the ministry machine going, to keep her giving, because she was the main person behind the ministry. And so, you know, I, and then every time I'd ever been to any gathering of Christians of the, the pastor's conferences or a Promise Keepers event that I went to in the 90s, every time I'd ever gathered with Christians, it was always more women than men. That's why Promise Keepers felt so weird and exhilarating is because, wow, this is the first time I've really been with a bunch of Christians who weren't wearing lipstick. And so um, it really was kind of a revelation to me. And I thought, there's got to be a book about this. And I went on this fledgling website called Amazon.com that I'd heard about. And I looked up the books and there were no books about this. And then I went to Barnes and Noble and there was no books about this. And so I decided to, hey, you can write for television. Why don't you try a book? And the rest is history. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you point out is that churches today are predominantly female. And we'll unpack in the show some of the reasons why that is. Do you think mm-hmm. most people are aware, like when you talk to people, maybe they're finding out about this for the first time, do, are people aware of this? No, the, the statistic that I like to quote uh, is that the typical church in North America uh, draws an adult crowd that is 61% female, an adult crowd. 
Um, and so uh, people are not aware of that. The popular perception is, is that churches are male dominated. And the reason people think that is because they're talking about clergy. Clergy remains about 80, professional clergy, paid clergy remains about 85% male. Uh, that's down from 95% when I originally wrote the book. Uh, women are flooding into the clergy and the mainline denominations. It's, it's getting harder and harder to find a male pastor in a typical, uh, you know, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal church. Um, but that aside, there's this perception that church is male dominated because the face of the church tends to be male. Uh, right. Leon Pottles wrote a book, a book that really, in, in his book, uh, The Church Impotent, he made a quote that I really love. The church is an army of women led by a few male generals. So <laughs> right. that's the situation we have. Yeah, it's interesting as you've addressed this. Um, I was thinking, too, you know, you're talking about things like the feminization of the church. You're talking about a lot of pragmatic issues with really how the church has branded itself in the last, especially the last century. I can imagine that there would be a lot of pushback on that. Um, have you experienced that in the time since you've released the book? Well, you know, I have. Um, there is, there's a very strong feminist movement in the mainline churches that simply will not engage with these truths. You know, it, it, it's very important to them to perceive the church as something male-dominated, patriarchal, harmful to women. Yeah. Um, that gives them vic victim status, which in our society gives you the moral high ground. So, um, but that's been the main source of pushback. You know, the, it's interesting. I, I wrote the book in 2005 and it was covered in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Mm. The, um, I, we got a really nice article in the New York Times. Uh, the NBC Nightly News has interviewed me. And none of these uh, reporters who interviewed me were, were um, they were more surprised than they were hostile to the idea of, male, of, a, of, a, of a field. It's not that the church is female dominated. It's that women are predominate in the church. And so they, they, when women are the majority in a church, they tend to create a culture that is more to their liking. I, I liken it to a glove that gradually conforms to the hand of its wearer. You know, over time, uh, the church has conformed to the, the needs and expectations of its most important constituency, and that is women age 50 to 80. Interesting. Yeah, it's also interesting. I mean, I think given your background in media production, stuff like that, you seem to have an eye for maybe some of the pragmatic things that people wouldn't necessarily notice. Um, I went to seminary. I think we, we generally heard things like pragmatism is, is bad, um, but you sort of have a unique lens to look at all of this stuff, right? So I, I'm, I'm just curious how your background shaped what you were seeing. Yeah, well, I mean, when you work in the media, as I do, you learn that everything has a target audience. You know, ESPN has a different uh, target mm -hmm. audience than HGTV. You know, one is e even down to the two uh, major home improvement chains in America. You have one whose slogan is never stop improving, and it's more targeted at women. It's got more decor items. The other one is let's do this, which is more targeted <laughs> at men. Yeah. So, you know, everything is marketed toward toward a different group. And usually, the, the, of course, the great dividing line in humanity is male and female. It's not white, black, brown. It's male and female. And so um, my background kind of informs that. And if you, if you open your eyes, you see it everywhere, especially in the way churches marketing things. You know, when I first uh, started looking at advertisements for seminaries, for example, when I was a young man in the 80s, I thought about going to seminary after I graduated from Baylor University. A lot of young men would do that, even those who, who were kind of iffy about uh, a career in ministry. And all the ads in the back of Christianity Today and the different magazines featured men. 
today, when I look at online ads that come through my Facebook feed or my social feed or whatever, it's all women in the pictures for the different seminaries. So, you know, it's, there's just been this shift, this tidal shift in who they're trying to attract. More women than men go to seminary now. And that's not necessarily because they want to become pastors, but that it's just a reflection of the feminization of the church. Uh, Christian, I'll tell you a quick anecdote before you move to your next question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, I was speaking, speaking to a young woman who serves on the worship team in our church and uh, just chatting, having, you know, having some coffee there after church. And I asked her, I said, well, you headed back to school. And uh, yeah, this was at Christmas time. She goes, yeah, I'll be going back January 10th or whatever. And I said, well, do, do you have a special, is there a special guy back at school? And she laughed and she goes, our student body is 71% women. Wow. And um, I mean, our, most Christian colleges are becoming convents. They're, <laughs> they're a place where or women go to be in fellowship with other women because there is such a dearth of young, young men following Christ. And uh, those who do are often not choosing Christian colleges. They're becoming, you know, it's all, they're becoming women's schools. Man, it really is so true. And something else that you talk about in the book, David, is the sort of the connection with a lot of, I, what I would say a lot of the mainstream liberal left-leaning stuff, you know, Christianity today has really changed. I talked to one guy yes. who worked there and he said, yeah, it's basically all like leftist women and sort of effeminate or gay men. Like it's, mm-hmm. that's sort of the yeah. bent. That sort of thing in media, especially, uh, is, you know, it, it's a turnoff for men. But my question is, what do you think the connection is with something like Christianity Today, which was started by Billy Graham? How did it get where it is now? And, and why is that dynamic? Like, it seems to parallel the church. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, sort of the same deal, soft guys and, and women. Okay, so Mr. Khan, you've just asked a question that's never been asked of me, and I want to give you a gold star for that one. That is a <laughs> nice. very perceptive question. You earned your, uh, your antlers today. Yes. Um, there is a t- I see a very strong tendency in all institutions, not just uh, religious ones, but government, uh, uh, clubs and universities, uh, social organizations, to liberalize over time. Because here's the thing, and, and let's do it vis-a-vis churches. Yeah. When it, if you think about the, if you're going to plant a church, what are the things you need? You need butts and seats. You need logistics. You need strategic planning. You need a bold message that's different from everyone else's. Uh, it's, it's grow or die time. Okay. Yeah. Once a church or an institution stabilizes, the focus goes off of growth toward maintenance. Now, in a maintenance mode, Women's gifts are highly prized. You have to keep people happy. You have to stamp down divisions. You have to create harmony. And so as a church, as any institution uh, ages, it tends to value feminine gifts over masculine gifts. And so this is what we're seeing in Christianity today. This is what we're seeing in various church bodies, these national bodies, such as the PCUSA and yeah. the Disciples of Christ and that are the, 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 the great need is to preserve institutional harmony, and women are particularly gifted at that. Men don't give a rip. You know, men will sacrifice relationships on the altar of rules, whereas women will sacrifice rules on the altar of relationships. Now, I know I'm speaking in very general terms here, yeah. Yeah. but if, if you have an institution that's dominated by women, it will tend to place a premium on preserving relationships at any cost, whereas men will tend to say... Hey, this is the rule. Get with it. 
And so um, your question to your question, uh, it's it's a it's a question of what an institution needs at a certain point in its evolution. And as every institution ages, including every Christian university, every every church, the need to preserve relationships trumps the need for growth. And that's why we see this concurrent feminization. Yeah, it, it seems, David, to tie, I think it's a great point. It really ties into something else you say. In one of the chapters toward the end of the book, you get into why megachurches are, are often different. And again, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking specifically of Mark Driscoll. We were part of Acts 29 for a time. Mark was kind of the mm-hmm. quintessential, like, not nice guy, soft, you know, maintenance mode. He wasn't that. But it seems like maybe one of the things, and I want you to unpack this for me, but that's one thing that's present in mega churches is you tend to have guys who are like, you know, the entrepreneur. Um, it maybe is the same reason why Mark's stuff fell apart is because that stuff over time, once you get into maintenance mode, it's harder to deal with. You know, that's true. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, there were a lot of things Mark did wrong and a lot of allegations that were yeah. uh, hur- hurled at him that were absolutely true. But I'm, I'm also thinking there is probably just some sore losers in there, too, as well. Yeah. who expected Morris Hill to be as nurturing as the Presbyterian church down the road. And when Mark said, no, we're not going there, you're abusing me. So um, again, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not being Mark, Driscoll fan, Mark Driscoll's fanboy here. You know, he, he admits he did wrong. Uh, Mark Cosper certainly showed us the many, many ways he did wrong. And, but I also, as a church moves into maintenance mode, it is going to be harder and harder to have a stru- truly um, – that type of, you know, kicking beep and making, taking names, that type of pastor. Yeah. Um, it would never survive in such an institution because people are pri- prioritizing the maintenance of relationships over the mission of the church. Yeah, that's huge. So as you look at the megachurch model um, and you look at some of the characteristics that make it more male friendly, uh, what are some of those, some of those things? Well, the first thing you notice when you walk onto the campus of a megachurch is you're not going to see any things that suggest that this is a woman's place. In yeah. a lot of churches, you walk in and you see quilts on the walls and lace doily on the communion table and felt banners all over the sanctuary or these uh, classroom-style bulletin boards with felt and construction paper that suggests a kindergarten classroom. You know, megachurches look like a a uh, resort, a theater, a business center. They definitely are gender neutral. And so when men walk in, they immediately think, okay, this is a place where I can, where where I'm welcome. It's not a place for my grandma or my kids. And then uh, megachurches do a very good job branding themselves gender neutral or even slightly toward the male. Um, A lot of them choose, choose names that are sort of, that are a little bit tough sounding. There's one in Oklahoma called Guts Church. I just, I just love, (laughs) if I'm ever in Oklahoma City, I'm going to Guts Church. Yeah. And, um, I I just think that's hilarious, but I, but you know, my hat's off to them. Cowboy Church is also very good at branding themselves around things that men interest at branding cowboys. (laughs) And it goes together. Ha ha. There you go. Yeah. Um, uh, but and then the sermon series are always going to be oriented toward guys. They're going to have men up on stage. Their worship leaders often a man, uh, you know. And this is not this is not an effort to discriminate against women. This is an effort to create an environment where, where men feel comfortable because. And the thing about women is, women like worshiping in the presence of enthusiastic men. Yes, they bring a certain men bring a certain energy and drive to a church that women simply can't seem to replicate in in their absence. 
And so if you create a church environment where men are welcomed, where men are enthusiastic, the women usually love it. It's not a question of discriminating against women, but rather creating an environment where both men and women can thrive. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you point something out in the book, too, that, that I've noticed in my time in ministry. So I pastored for a couple of years. And it was very common for people to say, well, we need to get the women and the kids. If we get the kids involved, you know, then the church is going to grow. And it simply didn't happen. Uh, what we found is a lot of times women, they were looking for like free daycare options in the summer, basically. So they'd come to your VBS. They never yeah. really stuck around. Mm -hmm. But one thing you point out in the book is that the, the presence of men is a sign of health for the church, maybe the sign of health for the church. And if you can get the men, the church will typically grow. I want to ask you, why, why is that? Well, first of all, there's lots of historical precedents for, for the point you've made. First of all, when Jesus started his church, you recall he chose six men, six women, and he started a children's ministry, right? Remember that? Right. Uh, no, no, you don't, because it didn't happen. Uh, went out and 12, found 12 regular knuckleheads, guys. And so that's a historical precedent. Two of the greatest church planters of the late 20th century are Bill Hybels and uh, Rick Warren, both of whom targeted a mythical male parishioner. Uh, Saddleback Sam or Unchurched Harry, and they built their entire institution around getting that guy in the door. And hundreds of other churches, Fellowship in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, all these other churches kind of emulated that model to realizing that if you got the guy, you usually got the, the women in the deal. It is very, very hard to create a church where men predominate because as the men flood in, the women flood in faster. Uh, mm. To my earlier point, there's nothing more attractive to a godly woman than to a godly man. And I'm not just talking about for romance or relationship. Women feel comforted when they worship in the presence of men. And um, it's somewhat discomforting to walk into a church where it's all old women and a bunch of a couple of old men. And, you know, young women are just not interested in that. So young men replenish the church in ways that we don't even quite understand. Yeah, I think it's such a huge point. Um, related to that, you have this, uh, I guess it was a questionnaire, and it ends up being the, the questions I think are from men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Um, and you're, you're asking people like, what do they think about the church? And, and again, is it in feminine or masculine language? And then you tie that to something mm -hmm. else with the lion and lamb language um, that you unpack. Mm -hmm. So I guess, w why do you think, well, first of all, what is that lion and lamb? this to Jesus model, what's going on with that in the church? Well, I wrote a whole book uh, about that called The Map, The Way of All Great Men. And when it's interesting how the, the Gospel of Matthew is structured. It presents Jesus's man, man, masculine journey in, in three acts. In the mm. first seven chapters of Matthew, Jesus is almost completely lamb. Blessed are the meek, turn the other cheek, do not resist an evil person, do not judge, love one another. It's all of that. It's very, very meek, mild, and gentle. Matthew 8 through 25, Jesus is completely lion, rebuking the Pharisees, mm. raising the dead, overturning tables. He's just, he's a man, a man on fire. And then Matthew 26 through 28, once again, he becomes a lamb. He allows himself to be spat upon, doesn't speak up in his own defense, crucified for mankind. And so um, I use this as a template for masculine development in my book, The Map. I actually identify these three journeys. I call the first, the journey of submission the second, the journey of strength, and the third, the journey of sacrifice. And then I show how every great man of scripture walked these three journeys. And those who began with submission, pro progressed to strength, and then finished with sacrifice became great men, men like Moses, 
The men who didn't complete their journeys, like David, he, he skipped his third journey completely, ended up in ruins. So that's, that's a little plug for my book. If you haven't read the map, it's a good read. I think you'd really enjoy it. Uh, get it yeah. together with your men and study it. The problem in the church is that we have the liberal church, which is running completely headlong after Jesus the Lamb. And then we have the conservative churches that are running headlong after Jesus the Lion. And so I think a lot of our right-wing churches unnecessarily pick fights just so they can be macho and, you know, get their, ch their chest up and, you know, say, hey, we're contending for the gospel by, you know, doing this or, you know, voting for this politician or opposing this government oppression or blah, blah, blah. You know, we puff ourselves up and get really big and mad. And then the left, it's all like, oh, but the poor and the oppressed and, oh, we're just so careful. Oh, yes, it's, you know. And so they, the church is actually bifurcating into hyper-masculine and hyper-feminine um, uh, wings. And, yes. you know, it's not good for the church to, to bifurcate, you know, we all need each other. We need to draw those in from the extremes and, you know, and help them understand that, you know, Christ was both lion and lamb. There's no sense in picking a fight. There's plenty of real fights out there and we can't abandon the need for personal transformation while we're trying to save the planet from, from, you know, whatever threat the, the left says it is. So uh, there's two Jesuses afoot, and these two G we need to recognize that there are, there are not two Jesuses. There is only one Jesus, and he was, he was both lion and lamb. He was both tough and tender. He submitted, then he was strong, and then he sacrificed, and we as men need to do the same. Yeah, I think that's a really huge point. I, I've often felt that way. Before I read the chapter, I didn't really put two and two together, so it helped me really see something that was going on. But, you know, I, I would talk to people who tend to be center-left, and they'll say, no, 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 Jesus, the Jesus who overturned tables, no, 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 Jesus was kind. He spoke to the woman at the well, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're right. Yep. I mean, true. it's not a different Jesus. That's the issue here. No, it's not. And it's interesting. Um, you're only allowed to be a lion in, in three different instances, okay? So if you're a left-leaning Christian, the only time you can be a lion is to fight for social justice. Oh, Other man. than that, you have to be a total lamb, okay? Yeah. If you are... In the, the Pentecostal churches, the only time you can be a lion is in spiritual warfare. Satan, I rebuke you in the holy name of Jesus, you know, that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And then if you're a, and if, but if you're an evangelical, it used, the only one used to be witnessing. That was the one area where you could be a lion. But now you can be a lion about vaccines. You can be a lion <laughs> about, you know, uh, all, uh, um, we, we tend to see threats, you know, every, every time somebody asks me to put a mask on, that's basically the mark of the beast. You know, so uh, we we can we can pick fights that are really probably not, you know, the real thing. We can amplify threats. That's what I'm saying. And so yeah. um, it we have to be we have to be very careful. We have to, you know, lean into the scriptures. You know, what is the real threat here? And we have to always take it back to personal transformation. Um, mm. It's not about cleaning the outside of the cup. It's about Jesus cleaning the inside of each of our cups. And, you know, that's the error of both the left and the right. You know, they try to create these perfect worlds through behavior control. And it's not about behavior control. It's about cleaning the inside of the cup. Mm. So uh, that's one of the things I try to emphasize to pastors is keep the focus on the inside of the cup and not on the political um, discourse of the day. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, know, I know you're also working on some stuff with, uh, I, I guess, helping pastors and their messaging. So maybe this mm -hmm. is something you've thought about. I've often thought about as I'm talking to somebody who's maybe center left and wants to emphasize the soft Jesus um, mm -hmm. and, and kind of deny the other part. I've often wondered, like, man, could we just 
is there a way to speak to this that is going to kind of bring us both toward the, the middle of who Jesus actually is? So I'm curious if you've thought about that. How do you speak to this issue pastorally? How do you preach it so that you're bringing people back together? Well, you know, I, I'm, part, I'm getting ready to release a series of 18-minute messages, the kind of sample sermons. I'm not a pastor, but as I train pastors, I'm realizing a lot of them need to learn to be more concise. I'm going to be launching something soon called the Online Preaching Coach. And I'm going to be teaching pastors how to how to land the plane in 18 minutes. Now, why 18 minutes, you say? Um, because, uh, let me ask you a question. What are the most watched sermons online? Do you know? Probably the ones that are over two hours long. <laughs> <laughs> no. The, mo- no. The most watched, you're, 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 boy, that's, that's, okay, I'm going to take away those points I gave you earlier. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> The most watched sermons that are changing and influencing the culture are not sermons at all. They are TED Talks. Interesting. The most watched TED Talk in history has over 72 million views. You, you can just do a, a, an internet search and say, you know, most watched TED Talks. And TED actually keeps a list of it. What I'm saying is to pastors is if you want to influence the culture, you have to learn to say what you're going to say shorter. Men are particularly intolerant of long sermons, except for a subset of men who are your proto-seminarians. These are guys who would just love it if sermons ran three hours because they can't get enough of the Greek and Hebrew words or the, oh my gosh, that was said in, that was presaged in Ezekiel 37, 12. That is so cool. And you have to realize your seminarians are just going to cheer you on for longer and longer sermons while the rest of the church goes out the back door. So, um, and and to even get further off the track, we mentioned Mark Driscoll earlier. Driscoll yeah. was one of the few guys on earth that could hold men's attention for an hour. And so everybody looked at Driscoll and said, he's growing a huge church in Seattle, preaching an hour. I'm going to go an hour, not realizing that they don't have Mark Driscoll's rhetorical skills. And so it has yes. dragged the length of sermons longer and longer and longer, even as our attention spans have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. So, I mean, I completely lost the track of what you're saying, but what, what, what was your question? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, how do you, yeah, how do you speak to the, I guess if you're on the lion side, how do you speak to the lamb side? How do you bring these two things together in that messaging? You know, I just, I, I'm going to punt to God on this one. Um, I, think, I think the evangelical churches have done a really good job keeping the focus on the inside of the cup. Personal transformation precedes societal transformation. And I think this is the great theological error of the left. We see these great things that need to be changed. And so we presume that the, that the, the solution is the outside of the cup. Yeah. Whereas the insanity of Christianity says, no, the solution to racism is personal transformation by Jesus. It's not racial quotas. It's not hiring a diversity officer. It's clean the inside of the cup. And the same thing on the right. The, pro, you know, the solution to sexual temptation is not a burqa. It's clean the inside of the cup. Yeah, that's a really good point. And always, by the way, safe to punt to God, I think, uh, and the scriptures. You know, one of the things I thought while I was reading the book was, you know, preach all of it, you know, teach on all of it. Mm -hmm. Jesus is both. Uh, A lot of Christianity Mm -hmm. is holding tensions together um, and kind of Mm -hmm. refusing to allow it to be one thing. So we can definitely, we can definitely do that. Um, David, one, one question I have for you. I love the concept I was completely unaware of it, uh, the Christian industrial complex. Um, you describe <clears throat> this in the book. I happen to be reading Jesus and John Wayne, 
And uh, she kind of talks about the same thing early in the uh, 20th century where, you know, Billy Graham was taken off. A lot of these sort of like Christian media stuff was taken off. What is the Christian Mm -hmm. industrial complex uh, that you describe in the book? Well, when I was 15, I became a Christian. And when I was 16, I started working in the Christian industrial complex. I got a job at a local Christian bookstore in Houston where I grew up. And I became very familiar with the product lines that people would buy the books that they were interested in, the music they were listening to. It was just at the beginning of what was called contemporary Christian music. I remember the day a, I pull open a box and there was an album from a pretty young girl named Amy Grant, her, her first album. <laughs> I mean, that's how far I go back in this thing. Oh, yeah. Um, but the Christian, industri- the in Christian industrial complex is the musicians who create praise and worship music, the authors who write Christian books, the people who sell Christian cruises, the um, all these industries that have grown up around catering to the needs of Christians. And it is not a bad thing, okay? Christians need resources. They need to go on retreats with each other. They need to be listening to uplifting music. Um, They need to be watching funny Christian comedians. These are all good things. But what we need to understand about the Christian industrial complex is two-thirds of the people who consume these products are women. Uh, I got to interview the uh, program director at Kayla, which is the largest network of Christian music stations in the world, Yeah, and discovered in that interview that they have a mythical listener named Kathy. Really? And Kathy, yeah, Kathy is in her early to mid-30s. She drives a minivan. She has three children. And as she drives around in the van, she puts Kayla in the car because she wants something that is safe for the whole family. That's why they have that slogan. Kathy's wow. into safety. She's into activities for her kids. And so when pe- both men and women listen to K-Love, but K-Love is targeted at women. Right. Two, two thirds, uh, three, uh, three quarters of the Christian books are purchased by women. Hmm. And so even when you write a Christian book about for men, you have to target women so that they will give it to their husbands. Um, so what happens is both men and women consume all these products, all these messages, all these songs designed to enthrall women, and it feminizes our entire movement. Because the Christian industrial complex needs to sell product. And um, again, it's not nefarious. It's not satanic. It's just an example of, a, um, of, a, of a, a market that is conforming to the needs of its largest and most uh, valuable constituency. Yeah. And the interesting thing about it, I think, you, you know, you talk about this in the book as well, but it sort of becomes this, quote unquote, vicious cycle, because the more you feed the audience, which happens to be a lot of women it seems those things seem to like drive out men. And I can remember this. I I was laughing as you're talking about Kathy, because that was me growing up. You know, we'd ride around with my mom and we'd listen to K-Love. And as teenage boys, my brother and I are listening to like Metallica and like, you know, (laughs) death metal. And K-Love would come on and my mom was like, this, this is great for the whole family. And we were like, wow, I hate this. As a young, as a young man, we could not stand it. Right. I had no, no idea why. Um, but yeah, and then and then like you look at it now and it's like if if you get in the car with a dude and you're going to a construction site, I remember working construction for years. If I put on K-Love or country music, which one is going to fare better, right? Country music yeah, every right. time. So, but yeah. it is interesting because I, I as a media guy, I'm thinking how do you so how do you change that? How do you turn that ship? Do you think Publishing companies, do you think that obviously somebody published your book, so that's a start. Um, but mm-hmm. do you do you think there's a possibility that it's going to shift or an effort to make it shift toward men? 
No, I, I don't think so because, you know, dollars follow sales. And as long as the church pers- persists, you know, two thirds women. Yeah. You know, I mean, so we have tried to launch so many projects for men, so many products for men, and they have to hurt, they have to jump twice as high. The hurdles are twice as high for them. And again, yeah. this is not because they, they don't, they want to green light these products. They really do. The men who work, but they got to sell books. Things, they, this book is so needed. But they have the market research. They know that Kathy is the one who is going to be buying this CD or, you know, downloading this CD or listening to it on, on streaming or whatever. And so the, whole, the entire worship industry is focused on getting that woman to hear a lyric that makes her want to download it and pay for a download yes. or stream it in her house. They've got to get her. And so the sentiments that we, how beautiful Jesus is, how protective he is, how, I mean, you know, how, what, what Driscoll used to call Jesus is my love slave. You know, it's just, <laughs> yes. it, 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 it reflects a woman's <laughs> fantasy regarding men. You know, yeah. the metaphors we use in church. Let me, here's one. Have, have you ever sat in church and been encouraged to have a personal relationship with Jesus? Have you heard that term in church? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, my question is, how many times does that phrase appear in the Bible? Nada. Nada, never. Zero. Okay? Yet it has become the number one way evangelicals describe their walk with God, is a personal relationship with Jesus. Interesting. Now, what that does, is it expresses the gospel in terms of a woman's greatest fantasy, which is a relationship with a man who will love and protect her. Now, am I making this up? No. Every romance novel is focused on that. Every romantic comedy is focused on that. The chick flicks, you know, uh, yep. every magazine that is most popular with women, People magazine, it's all about men and women having relationships. Nothing explodes. No one dies. <laughs> so um, it, 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 we've taken the gospel, which is used to be a dangerous mission, and repackaged it for a largely female audience by talking about as a personal rela- or, a, or a passionate, intimate relationship with Jesus. We even heard that at a Promise Keepers rally. Man, you need to fall deeply in love with Jesus. Uh, <laughs> no, <thank you. laughs> yeah, no. I'm hearing, I'm hearing, I know what you're saying, but I'm hearing something else. So, um, yeah. It's a question of how, you know, we don't, we've abandoned the metaphors that are in the Bible in favor of metaphors that resonate with our target audience, which is women. Yeah. Something that's interesting about this is on the musical front, um, the difference. So, you know, a lot of the guys like at our church, I was like, Hey, what's your favorite song? And they're like, Oh, the son of Mm -hmm. God goes forth to war. No question. And you know, that's typically not going to be the choice for a lot of the females. So you can, you can see that difference, but, but it also interests me, David, because in our culture, like you're not allowed to point to distinctions, which you do a lot in the book. Like men and women are different. It's sort of like cow goes moo stuff. Um, but we've been trained also to not even, we're not even supposed to notice those differences. Otherwise you're sexist, but it's interesting because from a marketing perspective, they're still doing that in these, you know, when they're deciding, you know, you talk about the Gillette razor, it's the same thing, but the female version is so different than how they market the male version. So, People are still seeing distinctions. Yeah. What, what you're talking about is I've got a chapter in there where I talk about the difference between the Gillette Mach 5 or Mach yes. whatever it is. I don't, I don't use it. Um, and then the Venus Embrace, which is the yep. female version. Now, the cutting edge, the blades are exactly the same thing, but they yep. are marketed as if they are a completely different product. The, pro- the packaging looks different. 
you know, the Mach 5 looks like something that an alien would use in Star Trek, you know, to some explode, you know, whereas the Venus embrace is soft and curved and, you know, pastel colors and um, same product, completely different marketing. And so to, to my point is that most of the church marketing is focused on the Venus embrace, on making church, making Christianity into something that is soft, warm, loving, tender, comforting. And what's so hard and why it's so hard to combat those things is because they're all absolutely true. I mean, there is yeah. a time, especially at conversion, where men do need to cry and get that crap out of our lives and talk about our hurts and our wounds and our, you know, and men who don't want to go down that road often end up inflicting great damage in the church. But at some point, you've got to turn from that journey of submission, turn the corner and say, all right, God, you've healed me. Now, where's my sword? Yeah. And so that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. There's a lot of men who simply will not soften themselves. I mean, let's bring Driscoll up again. You know, Driscoll's not a bad guy, but I think he, his journey of submission was incomplete. He hadn't been softened enough by the love of God before he started swinging that sword. And the sword yeah. came back and hit him in the head and hurt a lot of people. And, you know, he deeply regrets all that. And I think now, if you'll listen to his sermons out of Scottsdale, the Trinity Church, he has definitely pulled back his rhetoric. Um, he's definitely, you know, on a, a, a healthier path than he was because I think he was definitely, you know, tenderized by all the harm that he did. So anyway, I don't want to make this podcast about Mark Driscoll. <laughs> if you're out there with Mark, we love you. We're praying for you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Well, um, one of the things I want to do in the last couple of minutes we have on the show is talk about maybe some of the solutions, maybe where you've mm -hmm. seen some positive inroads either with your book or people starting to mm -hmm. notice like, hey, we need to, you know, we need to address the men and this can, you know, lead hopefully to a healthier church. And I want to ask in particular, I've, I've read a lot, you, you, you talk about it, the muscular Christianity movement, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Boy Scouts, I was a Boy Scout, I was an Eagle Scout, loved it. It was really mm -hmm. a formative thing for me as a young man. But, but I found myself asking is the solution that we just need to go back to including stuff like that in the church, or do you envision something different for change? Well, yes and yes. Um, I, I think yeah. for the existing church, the changes that need to be made are surprisingly simple. Um, oftentimes, it's just in the decor. The first thing I do is just say, walk through your church and look at the way it's decorated. Is this the type of place where a 21-year-old man who maybe doesn't know the Lord would walk in and say, this is, might be something for me. And so pull down the quilts and the banners and the flowers and, you know, repaint your sanctuary. And, you know, imagery, imagery is very important. Yeah. Men are visual. And what we see is what we believe to be the truth. And then, you know, sermon topics, uh, sermon length, shorter is always better. Um, and then uh, those sorts of things. These are, these are not gigantic changes. What, what people misunderstand is they think I'm saying that you need to paint this artificial veneer on your church of much of machismo, that yeah. you need to have hand-to-hand -hand combat during the offertory. Uh, no, you don't. All you need to do is just you know, unleash the lion in your messages, make the place look like a men's place, and you know, honor your men. One of the best things you can do is uh, honor your men regularly. Men, thank you. The men of the church have done this. Thank you, men. Most men are only criticized in church. They're never honored. So, um, you know, do some of those things. And, you know, if you go to churchformen.com, I've got a list of things that you can do and just to make your church more man-friendly. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great resource. I've been looking at that recently. Um, what would you point to in terms of, you know, you don't have to name churches or anything, but like success stories um, where you've seen like kind of just describe like what happens because surely there's people who read the book and go, wow, you know, David's right. We do have an issue. We, w- we want to address this. Have you seen <clears throat> this happen in real time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. Um, there, I would say look at almost any mega. I'm not trying to brag here, but I would say that most men who have planted a mega church in the last 10 years have probably read Why Men Hate Going to Church. Whenever I meet a mega church pastor, he's like, oh, Murrow. Yeah, I read your book. I mean, I've <laughs> a nickel for every time. So the book has been tremendously influential in that regard. Uh, one of the areas where I think we've won kind of a victory is in the area of praise and worship music. Uh, there are a lot fewer songs coming out today with what I would call erotic uh, lyrics, kind of describing the the uh, our our walk with God in romantic terms. And so um, even Matt Redman, the guy who penned those famous lyrics, "Jesus, I am so in love with you," was interviewed, and it's and he said, you know, if I rewrote it today, it'd probably be "Jesus, I'm so in awe with you." People are realizing that they're really pushing the theological boundaries when they bring this quasi-romantic language into their songs. And so, you know, if I, if I go to my grave having influenced that in some way, then, you know, hey, thank you, Lord, for using me. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and one of the other things, too, I mean, I totally agree with you. Um, even the way songs are sung, so it's not a knock against him particularly, but like with Chris Tomlin, it, even the key that it's sung in is like, this is for the women. Right, guys who are yeah. bass, baritone. So, you know, I'm sure with the music, it's not only lyrical, but you know, the entire experience uh, is important there for men right. too. Well, my my next frontier in praise and worship music is I'm on a one man crusade against one and done. Interesting. Um, a lot of churches are one and done now. Uh, they'll sing a song once and never go back to it because people have heard it. And they, the worship leaders uh, perform their own stuff in hopes of getting picked up on Spotify or YouTube or whatever. So I, I, just, I just can't tell you how wrong that is. Uh, the purpose of music is edification of the body, catechesis, and participation. We should be teaching them something. We should be helping them participate in the service. So worship services are already amazingly passive. We've gotten rid of responsive readings. We've gotten rid of any sort of vehicle participation. A lot of churches don't have weekly communion anymore. I mean, we literally just sit there. And if we take, if we put up songs that men don't know, they're not going to sing. Um, and it doesn't serve the body. All it does is serve the glory of the worship leader. And I just, I just think that's completely wrong. As you can tell, I get very angry about that. Yeah, that's huge. Have you got any, uh, projects, books, anything that you're planning on doing on that as well? No. Um, my next project is the online preaching coach. I'm going to be launching that in February, February of 2022. So all my focus is on that. I want to help pastors become more effective online communicators. And the reason for that is simple. Uh, Your online preaching is now your church's welcome center. 20 years ago, people just showed up in church, never having heard you preach. Those days are gone. Everybody checks out pastors online before they attend in person. So the crisis here is that pastors are putting 55-minute sermons online, and people are sampling them, and they're going, oh my gosh, this guy's rambling. He's too long. I can't sit there for 55 minutes. This doesn't make any sense to me. And they are either 
uh, giving up on that church or giving up on church altogether. The stable of online preaching that we have right now is probably doing more harm to the church than anything we've done in the last hundred years. And so I'm on a one-man mission to teach pastors how to post, shorten their messages, post excerpts from their messages rather than the full thing, uh, how to do promos, you know, a 30-second clip. Uh, the big boys are doing this. Andy Stanley's doing it now. Craig Rochelle's doing it now. And these guys are cleaning your clock. They are bringing tens of thousands of viewers in. And um, the, the, the neat thing is, is this, this method is available to any pastor, no matter the size of their congregation. It doesn't matter now if you have 10 people or 10,000 people. You can reach a huge online audience and you can build a local church, but you've got to be more effective with your online preaching. So online preaching coach is going to be helping pastors become more effective and less rambling and more interesting in the pulpit, which helps online and in the room. Yeah, that's awesome. And for people to follow along with those videos, just go to your website. Yeah, davidmurrow.com is going to be my hub for everything. I'm going to be shutting down church for men, bringing it in. Uh, everything's going to be at davidmurrow.com, M-U-R-R-O-W. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast after the end of February of 2022, you can go to davidmurrow.com and go to coaching and click on that. It'll also probably be the header on the front page, but uh, you can watch a little short introductory video. And then I'm going to have a free video course, a mini course there called the great, the nine commandments of great online preaching. And that anybody can take that course. It's free. It's about, I think it's going to run about 40 minutes. And it's just going to give you nine great things that you can do this Sunday to improve your online preaching with the goal of bringing more people to Jesus into your physical church. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we definitely appreciate it, David. We'll include links for that in the show notes. Anywhere on social media that people can follow you? Yes. I still have a pretty active presence at uh, Church for Men, facebook.com slash Church for Men. And then I'm developing this online preaching coach on Facebook as well. And uh, that would be, and then you can also just, if you want to send me a message, if you're interested in learning more about online preaching coach, just go to davidmurrow.com and reach out through the contact box there. Awesome. Well, we definitely encourage people to do that. Again, we'll provide links in the show notes. We definitely encourage people to check out your material, including the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. Mr. David Murrow, thanks again for joining us for this episode of the podcast. Yes, very glad to be here and God bless you. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Again, we've been talking with David Murrow. He is the author of the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church. We definitely encourage you to check out that book, read it. Got a lot of helpful information in there. Again, you can check out David's website, follow him on social media, and we'll include links in the show notes for all of that information. As always, we appreciate our Patreon and our ericon.com subscribers. We really appreciate the financial support that you put and really invest into this show. You're part of the work that we're doing together. So if you're not yet a member, I would encourage you to become one. You can go to ericcon.com, sign up to be a member today for as little as $5 a month. That goes a long way to supporting this work and to getting a very important message about gendered piety and masculinity out into the broader culture. We're fighting the media and the culture war one podcast episode at a time. So again, please go there and support the show. Also, be sure to check out our store. We've got pint glasses and t-shirts. So you can wear the Hard Men t-shirt. You can also drink a frosty beverage in the pint glass. Last, we'd encourage you to check out 
iTunes, go and review the show, leave a five-star review. That definitely helps us out. Tell people how much you enjoy listening, share with your friends, etc. Again, really helps us get the show out to more and more people. Until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like Ben.